0: Welcome to The Field. I'm your host, Zoe Pallier, and I am so thrilled to have Desmond Mead joining us for our first episode. Desmond is a true inspiration, and as you'll hear me tell him in the episode, he embodies the reason why I was driven to create this podcast. We will dive into how Desmond went from incarcerated, homeless, drug-addicted, and on the brink of taking his own life, to one of Time Magazine's most influential people in the world how he has used his experience as fuel to solve some of the problems he faced as a returning citizen, a term we will use to describe people who are returning to society from incarceration. What is really eye-opening to hear is that despite his celebrity status, Desmond's criminal record has continued to create barriers in his life. His story is truly incredible, and I'm so excited to share it with you today. Season one of The Field is brought to you by Castles, Brock, and Blackwell. Castles has one of the largest business law practices in Canada and is a market leader serving all sectors for over 130 years. Full transparency, I work at Castles and am beyond grateful for their generous support of this podcast. The things I love most about Castles are the firm's commitment to promoting a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive firm and their ongoing support of the communities in which they operate. I look forward to sharing more about some of the exciting initiatives taking place at Castles over the course of the season. To find out more about Castles, check out castles.com or on Twitter at Castles, C-A-S-S-E-L-S. Desmond, thank you so much for being here. As I was kind of saying to you, your story to me is the epitome of why we're here and why we're creating this podcast, because you experienced the justice system, you experienced incarceration and and reentry. And, you know, we'll we'll get into this, but we're pushed to the point of almost taking your life. And to me, that's what the system does currently. It breaks people down and we don't allow people to get back on their feet. And in doing that, we really rob the world of so much greatness and so much human potential and your story is a shining example of that and so thank you for being here and for being willing to to share with us
1: zoe i listen i'm honored to be uh having the opportunity to hang out with you for a while and so uh, i'm looking to get into it i could tell you you already just stimulated something in my mind just by, you know, you talking about how the system really breaks you down. And so I'm I'm ready to jump into it.
0: Awesome. Well, okay. So something that I like to start with just to really give everyone an understanding of who you really are from the beginning is, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, your childhood and growing up?
1: Well, I was born on the Island of St. Croix of U.S. Virgin islands and. You know, I have some memory of the time I spent on the island, but I moved to the continental United States uh, sometime around the age of around five or or six. And I basically spent my time just really growing up in um, South Florida, spending some time, of course, in Illinois as well.
0: And uh, tell us about your family life
1: yeah you know so i have a very interesting family i have a blended i come from a blended family uh with a total of around like 14 brothers and sisters of course i was the baby uh the youngest from my mom you know um so that was also always a point of contention and also my dad was a a a preacher and at one point he pastored his own church so i was raised in in a in, in the Christian family and, and as in any large family, you know, there's a lot of sibling rivalry and, you know, tensions here and there. But for the most part, I can say that I, I grew up uh, in, in a loving home and, you know, I had good guidance as a child.
0: And so then tell us about, you know, coming from there and a son of a preacher and what what sort of led you down this path that landed you in prison? Wow.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if we have enough time for that, but you know, <laughs> uh, to to give you an abbreviated version, you know, growing up as a teenager, you know, um I you know I idolized my brother and you know at some point, you know, I was introduced to <laughs> marijuana and you know, every, you know at the time, you thought that was a cool drug to use and that actually uh, led to my start of, of using drugs. And eventually when I you know, joined the army, while I was in the army, I was introduced to cocaine. Hmm. And my drug use escalated uh, to a point where I ended up getting in trouble for, for using drugs. And eventually when I was um, discharged and came back home, I was reintroduced to um, cocaine, and my addiction to cocaine led to my addiction to crack, and in that process causing me to end up homeless, and that's when I really started getting in trouble and then getting arrested uh, left and right, because, um, mm-hmm. you know, being addicted to drugs and eventually being homeless, it just exponentially increased. The likelihood of me interacting with law enforcement and it wasn't under good terms and so yeah that you know my drug addiction played a a substantial role in a lot of the headaches heartaches that i endured
0: Mm mm-hmm yeah, it's something that we know is so broken about the system that people who are struggling with addictions and mental health and so many other cha- homelessness, poverty, end up criminalized rather than supported. And I know that that led for you to a number, you were sort of in and out of the system, and then there was a final time. And that final time, how long did you spend in prison?
1: Wow, well, the last time I was incarcerated, I think I was convicted in 2001. At the time I was sentenced to 15 years in prison, uh, for possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. Uh, it was one of those cases where I was offered uh, a plea deal, but because I believed myself to be innocent, I elected to take it to trial. You know how they tell you, you know, that in the court of law, you know, everyone in the court of law seeks justice. You know, I think that's just a tagline. I don't think that, that happens in real life. And then the plea bargaining system, which, you know, I think over 90% uh, of cases, criminal cases, end in plea bargaining. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember the judge telling me that if, if a person believes that they're innocent, that they should take advantage of, of all their constitutional rights and, you know, make a jury of their peers uh, find them either innocent or guilty. And I elected to go that route, and I, I didn't fare so well. I was uh, I was found guilty, and you know what was what was kind of weird about it. Well, there was a couple of things that was weird. Uh, first thing was was that the the state offered three years, right? I elected to use my constitutional rights to be tried by my peers, and because I was lost right what happened was the state punished me for exercising my constitutional right and so while it was the same charge that they was willing to offer three years for when i was found guilty they moved for me to be sentenced to the maximum amount of time which was 15 years and you know i remember hearing that the prosecutor in that case the following day You know, as he was, you know, uh, in open court, he was saying, uh, particularly to the uh, defendants, don't be like Desmond, take the plea, right? Um, And that's how we're, so many folks are coerced into accepting plea deals for something that they're not even guilty of, for fear of, of losing at trial and then being sentenced to the maximum amount of time. So I know that there's a lot of people who are innocent. Uh, that are in prison, but for our plea bargaining system, that probably wouldn't have gotten a conviction or would have been home, you know? And so that was one of the weird things about it. And then the other one was really the issue around just being tried by a jury of your peers. And, you know, I wasn't. And I think race played a role in it, or the stereotypes played a role in it. You know, uh, when, the I never forget when um, my uh, attorneys told the jurors, basically the general consensus was was that the state you know used the police officers as the star witness, and the jury did not believe the police officers they didn't. and so that in itself basically said that the state failed to prove that I was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But then they went on and said that when I got on the stand, because I did take the stand in my defense, that I sounded too intelligent of a person to be in that situation. So I must have been guilty. Oh, man. Uh, I don't know how they came to that conclusion. But at the end of the day, because of it, I was sentenced to 15 years in prison.
0: Uh, I mean we could have a whole other podcast on all of the things that are so broken in the justice system. And those are two huge ones, right? We know the issues with the, you know, trial by jury system and also the whole plea bargaining system and the fact that people are so incentivized to take a deal. It's also broken and, and results in where we are right now in this world of mass incarceration. Okay. So you ultimately ended up being sentenced to 15 years. And did you have to serve that whole 15?
1: No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Um, I, when I arrived at my, uh, prison camp, one of the things I noticed was that there was no movement around appeal because once you're convicted at trial, you have the opportunity to make a direct appeal of the conviction. And when I seen that there was no movement, I was trying to reach out to attorneys. I, I didn't get any kind of responses. And before you know it, the time limit uh, for me to have filed an appeal of my conviction had elapsed. And so that forced me to, um, to go into the prison law library and try to figure out what to do. Um, you know, when I, was, when I was a little kid growing up, I used to watch a lot of pair Mason shows and I always fantasize about being an attorney or a pilot. I would say mainly because of my drug addiction, you know, those dreams had died. Uh, but when I was in prison and was forced to go to the law library to work on my case, it rekindled my passion of law. And so I ended up uh, drafting my very first legal document, and it was a, um a petition for rid of habeas corpus
0: and do you want to tell people what that means just for the non-lawyers in the room
1: <laughs> basically what i was doing was i was petitioning the courts and saying listen i know i was late in filing this and typically when you're late in filing that the court would not allow you to uh, uh, file the motion but However, uh, Your Honor, you know, I have a legitimate reason why I was late mm-hmm. filing it. And so I'm asking you to allow me to file a belated appeal, right, uh, in my case. And, you know, I gave them the reasons and uh, they agreed with me and said, okay, those are good enough reason. We're going to allow you to file um, an initial brief for your for your appeal
0: and then ultimately was your appeal successful
1: oh yeah you know and then you know when that happens in prison because there are tons of motions that are filed from people that are incarcerated and most of them are called post conviction motions or the motions that people file after they have been convicted and uh typically a very 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 small percentage of motions that are filed are post conviction motions that are filed or even granted and so, if you're in a prison camp and you draft a legal document that got a favorable response, everybody wants to come to you. You know, hey, work on my case. Hey, work on my case. And uh, and and the people, you know, when you're in prison, you 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 get to meet you know so many people, and you realize, man, that the overwhelming majority of folks that you meet, number one were probably under the influence of drugs or alcohol at the time that they committed the act or the time that they were arrested. And overwhelming majority of those folks, man, when you take away whatever crime they were accused of doing, what you see is a regular human being, somebody's son or or husband or uncle, you know, a brother, is very, very few people that you run into that has what, what I call a depraved mind. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But most folks, I mean, folks are not there saying "Man, I can't wait to get out of prison so I can get right back in. You know, they have the same hopes and dreams that everyone else has.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you know this about my background, but I spent time in Toronto, running programs in a youth detention center. Mm. And so I got to have exactly that experience that you're describing where I got to know the young men who were incarcerated and know them as people. And it's a huge part of the reason behind this is that I think for so many people, it's really easy to just look at someone as this label of like the worst thing that they've ever done. And the fact that they've been incarcerated and to to look at them as less than human, it's really easy to strip away the humanity when you're just looking at that label.
1: So that is. is and so when you talk about prison breaking you down, right, Or you talk about the criminal justice system that is something that I really, really focus on now because there is an underlying narrative that really impacts not only criminal justice system but immigration and so many other things. And it's that, it's that narrative that uh, has contained within it this premise that there are some people whose lives are more valuable than others, right? And so that's why we push back against words like felon and ex-con, right? and criminals they use all these terminology in immigration what they do they put a, the word illegal in front of immigrant right to mm-hmm. dehumanize them even when we're seeing with the latest uh shootings right uh in, in the united states that whenever you see an officer murdered someone one of the first things that they will bring up oh that person had a criminal history as if Having a criminal history makes it okay to be brutally murdered when you didn't do anything wrong, or maybe what you did only amounted to something to the level of a misdemeanor offense.
0: Completely. And thank you for sharing that because I think it actually is so important to see how this plays out in so many different facets. And in this one, I think exactly as you're saying, the system isn't set up to support people to succeed after being released from incarceration and and so to kind of dive into that i guess a little bit more and to go back in history again so you your appeal was successful you were able to to be released and did you know did you know leading up to the date that you were going to be released and was there any sort of transition planning or support
1: well i didn't know the exact date that I was supposed to be released. I do know in prison, they have some sort of transitional plan. However, you know, it's, you know, they give you like maybe a hundred dollars and send you on your way, put you on a bus or a train to uh, 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 your last known uh, uh, city where you resided. And that's, you know, give you instructions if you have to report in to a probation officer or, or to register. They'll give you that information, but that that's it. Mm-hmm. One of the strange things about getting released from prison or getting released from jail is that they would do so at the oddest times, right? You're not getting released from prison to jail at nine o'clock in the morning. No, you're getting released at maybe two o'clock in the morning, right? when it's hard to even connect with any services. Uh, And basically, you know, the only thing out there at two o'clock are things that would actually suck you right back into that system, right? Um, And so I remember getting put on a train. I took the train to downtown Miami. I found a police officer and told him, listen, I'm homeless. I I was just released from prison. I don't wanna get in trouble can you get me to a homeless shelter? And they were able to take me to a homeless shelter where I was admitted, you know, and I spent my first night after being released from prison.
0: And then what happened in the weeks that followed as you were sort of trying to get back on your feet?
1: Well, what happened was the harsh reality that, you know, even though, you know, I was an addict before I went into prison, right? and. While I was in prison, even though, you know, there is some ease to get to get drugs, you know, I didn't use drugs while I was incarcerated. And so in my mind, I didn't think I had a drug problem. But <laughs> what I quickly found out was that that disease just remained dormant until I was released. And it wasn't too long after being released that I found myself back to using drugs, mm-hmm. you know. And, and while I was at the homeless shelter, you know, the homeless shelter was able to help me find a job and to save up to get my own place. But, you know, when you get hooked on the drugs, you know, the job and the place disappears real quickly. And I remember doing that, uh, maybe about two, about two, two times, Mm -hmm. you know, where I would, I would stop using drugs and go back to the homeless shelter and get back on my feet. And, just when i'm getting ready to get back on my feet i will start using drugs again and to eventually uh it led to a point where in august of 2005 that's when i was at my at my complete bottom uh because i actually found myself standing in front of railroad tracks waiting on the train to come so i can jump in front of it in my life
0: yeah yeah and i mean what comes to mind for me is is this idea that and I, I, I kind of mentioned this before that instead of supporting people through treatment to address addictions, we're criminalizing addiction, and putting people in prison and jail where they don't belong and where there is no treatment. And just like you said it, you know, that that addiction lays dormant, but it's still there. And if there's no support, and you're then just letting people out, what do you expect is gonna happen? Yeah, we're not setting people up to succeed in that way.
1: Yeah, one of the other interesting points that I was able to discover, you know, when I started getting into advocacy was that in, in Dade County, there was a study that showed that when you're homeless, chances are you would commit about maybe 70 crimes a year. When you're homeless and you have a substance abuse issue, then that number uh, increases to over 90 crimes a year. And so the argument was that if you really wanted to reduce crime, you're not trying to lock people up. What you're trying to do is get them safe and affordable housing and get them substance abuse help. And you do that, you would significantly reduce the influx of individuals into our prison system, which does nothing but creates a heavier tax burden on the citizens of the state.
0: For sure. And so in your case, that led to where where you just took us, which was... You're standing at the edge of the train tracks, you're waiting for the train to come along so you can jump, and then what happens?
1: The train didn't come.: Yeah. The train didn't come, Zoe. And I ended up crossing those tracks, and um, I ended up walking a few blocks further, and I ended up checking myself in the drug treatment. Uh, after being there for about four months and successfully completing that treatment, I moved back into the homeless shelter that I had previously lived. And while there, I decided to. I wanted, like I was, you know, I was, I spoke about earlier about this vicious cycle of of relapsing, where you you stop, your life starts to improve, and then you back to using drugs, and over and over and over. And I wanted to stop that cycle, mm-hmm. and so I, I I was trying to figure out what can I do, and the only thing I could come up with was to go to school, get an education. uh Maybe that would raise my self esteem. Uh, enough so I would not end up at railroad tracks again because I really did feel deep down inside that if I were to uh, relapse again and find myself in front of the railroad tracks that this time I probably wouldn't be lucky.
0: And you you did. You went back to school and then you went to law school and got a law degree.
1: Yep. You know, I... um, Those are some good times. You know, I, I, I first enrolled in the paralegal program. It was an associate's degree program and um, did extremely well. Ended up graduating like at the top of my class. Uh, then I pursued a bachelor's in, in uh, public safety management with a concentration in criminal justice. Uh, ended up doing well in no in, in studies as well. Graduated with highest honors and then I was accepted. the florida international university college of law and in may of 2014 i graduated with my juris doctorate degree so i tell folks that i have a dual doctorate degree right a doctor in law and a doctor in the streets right uh because let me tell you it was um it's some experience uh being homeless and 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 i was homeless for double digit years Mm -hmm. and being incarcerated and interacting with the criminal justice system. It's an experience that, you no, know, I definitely don't want anybody to go through, but not everybody gets the opportunity to go through and survive, to be able to talk about it mm-hmm. like I am.
0: It's so true. And as a formerly homeless person and a formerly incarcerated person, can you tell us about some of the stigma that you faced?
1: Well, I mean, it goes back to, you know, what we talked about with this narrative mm-hmm. you know there is even you know even within our world there is some stigmas that's there that we have to try to break away from and you know what the biggest one is distinguishing between violent and non-violent right and i'm going to tell you why right because when people look at me right and they would if they pull up like if the police were to stop me they would pull my my rap sheet up and they'll see battery on a leo right And what battery on a Leo really means in real life is that at some point you were arrested by the police and at some point uh, they got physical with you and caused some harm to you. And so to justify the harm that they caused to you, they give you the charge battery on a Leo, right? They'll pull it up and they'll see uh, aggravated battery, uh, a fight between me and my brother. But those things, oh my God, he's a violent criminal, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not, right? And and I really, I mean, I'm no more prone to violence than anyone else, right? Mm -hmm. And then you see that there's that discrimination there. So many times, like for instance, uh, 95% of people who are incarcerated are getting released, Mm -hmm. right? And there is no distinction between violent and nonviolent when you're being released, right? So the question is, why do we only want services why do we only want uh, re-entry, uh opportunities to be provided only for people with non-violent offenses yeah it really doesn't make sense because at the end of the day no matter who comes out no matter what they're charged with it's in society's best interest that these individuals successfully reintegrate yes but that narrative that says that because I am a criminal or because I am a felon that I don't deserve to be treated with dignity and respect because I'm less than. That creates uh, so many roadblocks and help to contribute to policies that really serves no purpose whatsoever other than to discriminate against me because of a mistake that I made. It doesn't benefit anyone.
0: A hundred percent. And so What can we do better as a society to support people who are re entering the community after spending time in prison?
1: You know, the best thing I can think of is just to use your imagination. Mm. Imagine that that is someone who you love. Mm -hmm. What would you want happen to them? Yeah. How would you want them to be treated? That's it. Imagine if it was your son, your daughter, or your favorite uncle who, you know, hey, your favorite uncle. He was at the the family barbecue and tossed one too many, and he went to the bar and got in a fight. He broke somebody's nose. He decided to say he's got to serve two years or five years or whatever. right? He does that. He comes out. He's still your loving uncle. He's still your favorite uncle. Do you want him to have a difficult time getting a job? Do you want him to have a difficult time finding a place to live things of that nature do you think he should have the right to vote
0: well and speaking of the right to vote (laughs) so let's talk about what it is that you did to better support people who are re-entering society
1: yeah we gave them a voice yeah that's the best thing we could possibly do because when you're the other and you cannot vote or you believe you cannot vote or you don't Participate in elections. What we've seen, like, go back to this violent, nonviolent distinction, right? What I, when I look at it, it's nothing but the fruit of political rhetoric that was used to cater to people who vote. Yeah, and and knowing that I've got to take this tough on crime stance, right? Uh, and if I do that, that means that I've got to be vicious on on these criminals, right? And so when you know when you talk about policymakers that know in the depths of their heart that a lot of these policies is not making anyone uh, more safe, right? A lot of these policies are not benefiting anyone and only putting money in the hands of a select uh, group of people, right? And they know it's not the right thing to do. They still do it because one of the reasons is they don't have to worry about facing repercussions. And so I don't care if companies are taking advantage of people wanting to speak to their relatives and charging these crazy fees to use the phone. I don't care if the uh, uh, conditions are bad or whatever. You know, I don't care about that because those people don't vote. So what? how do we change that? We give the very same people who uh, was overlooked, who was silenced, right? Who was told that didn't count, didn't matter, that they were the lowest of the lows and give them the power of the vote. And because of America's infatuation with criminalizing and incarcerating people, it was a large group of folks that were, if they were to be engaged, will definitely have a significant impact on outcomes of federal, state, local elections. Yeah. Now, for the first time in their political career, Now they really have to be smart on crime instead of just tough on crime.
0: Yeah, smart on crime, definitely. And for context, for any listeners who don't know this story, when Desmond, you you got out, you realize I don't have the power to vote. That's been taken away from me. And you make it your mission to restore voting rights to 1.4, is that right? million
1: 1.4 million yeah
0: floridians with felony registered felony convictions yep and i mean what an unbelievable accomplishment
1: it was you know when i first came up with the idea you know folks thought i was crazy or back to and drugs again right? i'm sure especially in the state of florida which was uh, uh probably the toughest state to pass uh, a citizen's initiative but you know, I was on a mission from God. You know, at the end of the day, it was the right thing to do. You know, what I love about uh, this Amendment 4 thing was that not only did it reenfranchise, enfranchise you know, 1.4 million Floridians, but the way we were able to do it demonstrated to the world and to this country that we can accomplish great things without having to tear each other down, without having to scare each other into doing it. Yeah, and on in november 2018 when we won and those 5.1 million people voted for us you know i tell folks that there were votes that were not based on fear or hatred but rather those votes was based on love forgiveness and redemption and we showed the world that love can in fact win the day
0: you did you really did so a couple things left that i want to talk about one is we talked a lot about this stigma and this kind of idea that you're the way that i think about it is that it's almost like you you're released from incarceration and you're wearing this name tag that's stuck on you that says like you know formerly incarcerated convicted of whatever the, whatever it is right the worst thing that you've done the thing you're least proud of is like there for everybody to see and if you could go back in time and take off that name tag and write on it anything that you want that you would have instead wanted people to see when they looked at you what would you have written
1: it will be it would be a name tag that everybody would have to have right i don't think there should be any distinction. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it should be that I'm a human being. You're right about wearing that scarlet letter of shame. You know, unfortunately, you know, I mean, listen, people are not walking around saying, hey, I'm an ex-liar, or, you know, or whatever, you know. But we're forced to do that. And uh, like I said, it shows up in ways that is so like hurtful and dehumanizing, you know. Mm-hmm. One of the, as a matter of fact, if you don't my can share a quick story mm-hmm. of, of just an experience I had, a personal experience, you know, but here I am, a person that was able to overcome, uh, being incarcerated, being addicted to drugs, overcome homelessness, uh, and not only overcome it, but you know, in the process of doing so, really dedicating my life to giving back to my community, to my country, being a contributing member of society. Uh, so much so that I've been like widely recognized, even going to law school and obtaining a law degree, but in spite of all those accomplishments, maybe like a year ago, trying to, I had a hard time finding a home for my wife and kids, you know, every time we think that we have, we found a a good home. Perfect home, the application process comes into effect, and before you know it, criminal history pops up. And if they don't get you through the application process, they get you through the qualifying piece with with lenders, because even uh, lenders they look at the criminal, and that impacts your credit score. Believe it or not, so we spent quite some time trying to find a place to even rent and, and could not find it, you know, until my wife had to, you know, when we found the last home, she had to actually write the owners a letter and say, listen, we, we love this home and we're going to apply, but let me tell you about my husband before you just get the printout. And when she, it was a very uh, heartfelt letter and which touched the owner's heart. And they were actually able to work with us through the process. And even with the owners being willing to rent to us, we still had more hurdles to overcome just to be able to seal the deal and get the lease agreement. That is so like the humanizer, because you're talking about many years ago, but yet here I am, this guy, you know, some people say I'm famous or whatever, you know, Maybe did you know, a couple of things. Matt, I was Time Magazine, 100, most influential person in the world. But when it came time for me to fill out an application, I felt like the lowest of the lows. Yeah. Right? I felt like this, you know, all because just having to relive that and knowing that, man, I really know what they're going to say.
0: Yeah. And and then you think about I'm so glad that you said that because that's what's going through my mind, too. Right. Like we're talking about we're talking about one of times 100 most influential people in the world who has truly changed the world for one point four million and counting people. And you can't get a place to live all these years later. Like you're jumping through those kinds of hoops what about for the person who wasn't yes. times 100, 100, most influential people in the world, right? Like, what about for your average person who's just trying to make a living and support their family and get back on their feet?
1: That's a good I mean, that is, that is a great question. You know, that's a question I think about, I'm like, wow, if I still have these obstacles, I could imagine what that person is facing. Today, who's getting released from prison, Mm -hmm. you know, and the challenges and how large those challenges may be in this person's eyes, because now I'm pretty well situated and established and those challenges still appear large to me. Right. But what about that person that don't have the job, a good job, or don't have stability, you know, that may not have the support network? Well, how big are those challenges looking to that person? You know, and so it it could be very discouraging. And in your words, it can really break you down.
0: Yeah, and so really thinking about how do we start to have these conversations and create this platform where we can share these stories so that hopefully people start to shift their mindsets and really start to look at people as human first and build bridges. Yep, you're so right. Desmond, thank you so much for the incredible work that you do in the world for who you are and uh for being here with us can you tell everyone what is important about what you're doing now what they need to know about how they can help and where they can find you
1: all right so let me tell you first of all the work that i'm doing right now is the work that i think it benefits everybody right and what it is is about expanding access to democracy right getting more people Uh, register to vote and engage, Mm -hmm. right, in, in, in elections, whether they be returning citizens or people who are eligible to register to vote but are not, right? We wanna create a society in which people are excited and enthused about actually going to vote as opposed to feeling like they have to go to vote. We want them to wanna go to vote, right? And so our ways of doing that is starting at the bottom and helping a returning citizens register the vote in Florida. We passed amendment four, but our legislature passed laws that now require that people pay off their legal financial obligations before they're able to register the vote. Well, we want to help them do that. And so we're constantly raising money. Uh, we have a fines and fees fund that people tax deductible, that people can contribute to, and you know, all of those proceeds go towards Uh, helping people remove those legal financial obligations. And then of course, our organization, we're out in the community every single day. We've just launched the bus tour, free to vote bus tour. You've been seeing uh, these voter suppression or democracy attacks against democracy happen throughout the country. And I believe that the best way to respond to uh, voter suppression is with aggression. And that means more aggressively uh, registering people to vote and getting people engaged. Right. Uh, cause we would not let democracy be taken hostage. And so we're out there with the free to vote bus tour, trying to get the communities excited about uh, registering the vote and turning out the vote. And so general support, we definitely love it. Uh, we're engaging and employing returning citizens, which is the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Have those who are closest to the pain, be a part of the solution. And so folks can go to our website at www.FloridaRRC.com, FloridaRRC.com to donate, whether it's uh, C3 or C4. And then they can always find me at Desmond Mead on Twitter, uh, on Instagram. Send me a direct message if you want to get involved. And then if, if all of that fails, just holler at Zoe and just say, listen, hook me up with Desmond Uh, because we want to contribute. But just know that the work that we're doing not only helps people who've been impacted by the criminal justice system, but if you ever believe the adage that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, then you must believe that our society cannot get strong until we empower those that are weakest among us. And so any support that you give us is support that you're giving yourself as well because our work will help to make a better world for all of us.
0: I don't think there's any better way to end than that. Thank you.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for listening. It truly means the world that you have taken time out of your day and spent it with us. Join us in episode two for our conversation with Glenn Martin, where we talk about some of the ways returning citizens are set up to fail and learn a little bit more about the fines, fees and restitution that you briefly heard about today. If you'd like to support the show, there are two things that will really help us out. First, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com thefieldpodcast where you can access more content like this. See you next time.